In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that was above the earth and in the earth and on the earth. And the crowning jewel of creation was woman. He had already created man, but had identified the situation as being something less than perfectly good. And the reason was not because man was lonely, but because man alone could not bear the image of God. Woman was not created in the image of man. She was created in the image of God, so that together man and woman could bear that image. Tragically, however, shortly after her creation, she was seduced by devil himself. After he had already managed to convince one-third of the holy angels to join him in his mutiny against God eternal, after he had convinced millions upon millions of angels that he was actually just as powerful and perhaps even more powerful than God himself, he turns that power of deception upon the woman and she falls for it. And as a result, sin enters into the world. And then Adam, as our representative head, sins as well. And through him, that sin is then passed on to every single human being that would be born right down to this very day. But what's remarkable is that right at the very beginning of that event, before anybody had an opportunity to show remorse, before anybody had an opportunity to confess the sin, even before any judgment would be rendered, God himself intervenes to lay out the plan of salvation. And what we're going to see this morning in the text of Scripture that was just read to you earlier is the unfolding of that actual plan of redemption in time and space. This was predicted all the way back in the book of Genesis. And it's one of the many reasons why, if we don't understand Genesis, we're not going to understand the rest of the Scriptures. But very early on, in chapter 3, after we have the account of the fall, we have the account of God introducing the curses that would be the consequence. And you need to remember that God did not curse the man. He did not curse the woman. He cursed the ground, and He cursed the serpent. But built into that very curse is the promise of future redemption for those who would believe. So listen carefully as I read to you Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Why is that so important? It's so important because what we just read in Matthew chapter 1 is the fulfillment of that covenant promise. If you'll direct your attention back to Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to uh, raise and answer two questions today. The first question is, what must we believe about the virgin conception? And the second question is, why must we believe in the virgin conception? I've entitled this message, The Virgin 
and the viper. Number one, what must we believe about the virgin conception? I think if you look at verse 18, you'll see this. First of all, we have to believe that this is the seed of the woman. It is the seed of the woman. Matthew begins this section by saying, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's a statement of fact. The Gospels here are historic records. They are intended to tell us something objective. He isn't leaving this open for interpretation. By the Holy Spirit and by divine inspiration, Matthew, the author, makes a statement and it's definitive. He says this is how it took place. Specifically, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. He's going to give us a context. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Maybe you've been familiarized with this term before, but it was in some ways similar to our present day engagement. But it was also much more serious and committed than our present day engagement. We need to understand that it was in this particular context that as a consequence of what is revealed here, Joseph had some very important decisions to make. Because she was betrothed to him. And yet before they came together, before there had been any sexual union between the two of them, she was found to be with child, and that child was from the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is how we know that Jesus Christ was born of the seed of the woman. The promise from back in Genesis 3.15. Now, without going into too much of the biology here, the reality is that there is seed in both man and in woman. So when you think about normal human reproduction, there is the coming together of two seeds. And together, they create one new being, an entity with all the necessary chromosomes. And depending on whether it's an X or a Y, when they come together, it will be either a male or a female. But in the case of the conception of Jesus Christ, there was no male seed. It was only the seed of the woman. There has never been a birth like this ever, and there will never be a birth like this in the future. Jesus Christ was not an embryo implanted into Mary in order that she might be a surrogate. Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, acting upon the seed of the woman, became that child inside of her that would be born. It is the seed of the woman. Why the seed of the woman as opposed to the seed of the woman and the seed of a man? Why couldn't Jesus Christ be born with the seed of of a man. The answer comes to us in a couple of passages in the New Testament. We're not going to be able to go through all of these, and I know this is going to be a little bit more technical than normal, so please bear with me. I think it's very important, though, for you to understand it. First of all, you've got Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. In Romans 5, we see that there was a first Adam, and there was a need for a second Adam. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 to 49, again, we see a first Adam and a second Adam. And in that first Adam, the historical Adam, it says, we all died. That sin nature passed on through that man to all of his offspring, all the way down to us. That sin nature 
handed down because Adam, being our representative, when he fell, passed that down to all of his offspring, and nobody was exempt from this. There needed to be a second Adam, a perfect Adam, an Adam that didn't fall where Adam fell. And both Romans and 1 Corinthians clearly outlines that second Adam is Christ. Eve, as the first transgressor of the law, would one day bring forth a son apart from Adam so that he could be the better Adam and the atonement for all of the transgression. It is true, we know, that both Adam and Eve sinned, but the consequences of their sin passed down to the next generations in a different way. The culmination of this was also given to us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 as it relates to Eve. If you do have a moment, you can turn over there. You might find this interesting. 1 Timothy chapter 2. There's a statement that is made in verse 15 that we need to understand. It comes in the context of a lengthy discussion, often misunderstood and will have to be set aside for another time. But for now, what we do see is an illustration given at the end of this section, specifically referencing the main character in Genesis 3. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, Yet she, singular, one singular woman, who is the reference to the she? Where's the closest antecedent to the she? You look back, and it is verse 13 and 14. This is a reference to Eve. Eve herself will be saved through childbearing. This means that throughout history, children will be born. Eve was called the mother of all the living. And eventually, through the bearing of children, a child would be born who would save not only Eve, but everybody else who put their faith in him. This is a direct and specific reference to Eve. It is the fulfillment of that prophecy. The first thing that you must believe about the virgin conception is that it is the seed of the woman. Secondly, you must believe that it is the Spirit of God. Look at verses 19 through 21. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. (laughs) That would be a decision that must have been extraordinarily difficult for Joseph to make. Why is that a difficult decision. It's a difficult decision on a couple of levels. One would just be the the simple human reality that here's a woman that you had been betrothed to, that you were planning to marry, that you were no doubt very much in love with, and it turns out that she is pregnant. And you know that it is not as a consequence of anything that you have done. And the only reasonable, rational conclusion is that she has not only been unfaithful to you, but an immoral fornicator. And the amount of grief you must be feeling would be almost beyond description. I find it very interesting that Mary is in a vulnerable spot, and Joseph has a decision to make. And his decision would be heavily influenced by his understanding of God's law, God's Mosaic law. Now, in case this isn't something you're very familiar with, we're going to go back and take a look at it. I want you to imagine for a moment that Joseph gets this news that his betrothed is pregnant. He has to figure out what to do. And so if 
he were to pick up the phone and call his lawyer, he'd have to get some advice. You can picture this. Picks up the phone, calls, you know, Mordecai Shapiro. He's Jewish, right? He says, uh, I've got a problem here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm betrothed, right? And he says, yes, yeah, lovely girl, that Mary. And Joseph says, yes, that's what I thought too. Um, problem is, she's, she's with child. His lawyer says, what were you thinking? And he says, no, no, you don't understand, it wasn't me. He says, yeah, right, I've heard that before. And he says, no, 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 really, it wasn't me. What do I do? And he says, well, you got some options here. And he would go back and he would, would relay to him what the law was. And the law was very specific. In fact, if you go over to Deuteronomy chapter 22, you can read it for yourself. Deuteronomy chapter 22. In verses 13 to 19, we see the protection that God gives to virgin brides in case their husband seeks to bring some charge against them that they were not, in fact, virgins at the time of their being married. And if they bring this sort of a charge against them, there is evidence brought to prove that they were. And when this man is proven to be a liar, he is whipped, beaten, and fined, publicly humiliated for the shame he brought upon his wife. And he is therefore not permitted to take any further actions against her for the rest of his life. Very serious to call into question the integrity of this young woman. But it wasn't always the case. Sometimes there were women who were guilty and men who were guilty. Chapter 22 of Deuteronomy, beginning in verse 20, but if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Strong language, isn't it? You have this woman in the house who's sleeping around with men. She's bringing whoring into the house of her father. And as a result, she is taken to the front door and stoned by the men of the city. That's essentially what Mary is facing. In some cases, it was adultery. Look at verse 22. But if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The penalty for adultery was death. It was a capital crime. There is also fornication, verse 23. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both to the gate of the city. You kill them both. It's not just the man or not just the woman. If the two of them are engaged in fornication, they are both to be stoned. Now, there is also the case here of rape. Look at verse 25. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her, this is a very violent word, kazah in the Hebrew. It's a word that means to take something by force and subdue it. He does that and he lies with her. The man is to die, but the woman is not because she isn't guilty of anything. Well, what about if there's some consensual tryst going on between the two of them. Look at verse 28. But if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her, unfortunately the ESV uses the same translation. That's not very good. Your translation shouldn't be the same. They're two very different words. The first word is a violent word to take something by force against its will. 
The second word is a, a word that was used even in a seductive kind of way, even sometimes in a righteous context. Now, these are the two that are simply deciding that they are going to uh, get involved with each other sexually before getting married. And if this happens, then essentially he is forced to marry her. There is no way that Scripture would force a woman to marry her rapist. This is clearly an example of two people who have decided to get involved sexually when they shouldn't. And that man is therefore forced to go through the regular process in that culture to pay the price and take her. There is no, as one author put it, opportunity for any Old Testament walkaway Joe. Well, let's go back to our context now. Matthew chapter 1. This is what Joseph's facing. Joseph has got to make a decision because he cannot be implicated in sexual immorality. If he goes to the courts, he has got to make a claim one way or the other. And as he is wrestling with this, the text makes it clear that he knows his innocence. It says that he is a just man. It's a word that's used elsewhere for the word righteous or even justified. He is the innocent party. There's always a guilty party and an innocent party. He's the innocent party. And he has to decide what he is going to do. And so he goes to his room and he meditates and he thinks about it. He wrestles with this difficult challenge in his own mind. And he says, I'm not going to put her to open shame, but I'm going to divorce her quietly. You know, if uh, the culture hadn't gone so far away from the Scriptures and from the law of God, this option would never have been open to Joseph. You see, the rules were very simple according to God's law. She would have been put to death. But Joseph decides that instead of shaming her and putting her to that public spectacle, he is going to divorce her quietly. That is not merely a comparison. That's not a word used to describe the way he is going to go about the plan. It's a technical term. The lawyers had introduced a way into the law, into the culture, so that if there was a woman who was found to be pregnant outside of marriage, you could circumvent Mosaic law and you could just put her away quietly. You could have a divorce where you would literally gather together with the families involved and there would be a financial settlement and that woman would usually be taken away and hidden away from society until the birth of the child. Well, this is the only thing that, that Joseph can think of. He doesn't want to shame her. You know, the only other place this word for shame is used in this kind of context is in Colossians 2, where Jesus Christ does shame his enemies, having defeated them on the cross, and he parades them through the streets so that you can see how he has conquered sin and death and hell. And Joseph says, I'm not going to do that to Mary. I'm going to choose the quiet route. And so... With his mind made up, we read this now, verse 20 and following. <laughs> but as he considered these things, his options, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." 
Well, Joseph would be just as shocked as you would be. Joseph doesn't have a category for this. Joseph here is told by this angel, by this messenger of God, that what is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. It's the union of the Holy Spirit, God Himself, and her seed, and thereby creating miraculously within her a human child who would not have inherited the sin nature from Adam. And so as he says this to Joseph, the angel says, therefore he will be able to come and to save his people from their sins. There are a couple of texts that you need to understand to really round this out for you. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Again, I apologize for taking you to a bunch of cross-references. You know it's not my custom, but... In this case, these are critical texts for you to underline and go back and revisit later, perhaps. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. His Son, His equal, was sent by Him. He didn't get created in Mary. He was sent And he is sent, notice it, in a particular way. Born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those, verse 5, who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There was no way for anyone to redeem us unless that one became one of us but was not able to sin like one of us. Christ came, sent from the Father, in order that he might obey perfectly and not be able to sin, and therefore do everything perfectly where Adam failed. But you'll notice that he was not a son above the law or over the law, but a son under the law. Born of a woman, truly man, under the law, subject to everything that God had set forth for us to do, because it is only by works anyone is going to be justified And none of us have ever done enough good works to be justified. Somebody had to come to do those good works for us that it could be imputed to us. That's why you have the virgin birth. That is why you have the Spirit of God involved in the conception of Christ. Now, this couldn't be put any more clearly than in the book of Hebrews. There's a reason why we studied the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians recently and consecutively because these build on one another. But listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. What are the same things? Flesh and blood. Who's the he? Christ. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Christ came as flesh and blood, to destroy the one who had power over flesh and blood to bring it to death, namely the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Every one of us, as sons and daughters of Adam, are subject to the slavery of sin. And as Paul explains in Romans, it is through the gospel that one is freed from the slavery of sin to become a slave of righteousness. That is only possible because a flesh and blood substitute laid down his life for us. You must understand the seed of the woman, 
the Spirit of God, and thirdly, that He is the Savior of the world. Look at verses 22 through 25. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In John 1.14, we read that Christ came and he dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, it, it tabernacled among us. He tented among us. He became like us, among us, as us, for us, but was entirely different than us in the most important way, and that is with respect to sin. And that here is what Matthew wants to interject. Now, these are Matthew's words. Matthew is a historian, is no longer quoting the angel, and Matthew is now inserting his own statement. Matthew is telling us, by his own commentary, that this is the meaning of Isaiah 7.14. So this is a divinely inspired interpretation of Isaiah 7.14. Now it's very important to remember that Isaiah 7.14 happens in a context. It's called Isaiah 7, which is in a further context called the book of Isaiah. 66 chapters broken down into the first 33 of judgment and the last 27 of hope and blessing. One of the most important prophecies in all of the Scriptures. One of the books where if you understand that book, it will give you a virtual grasp of all of the rest of recorded Scripture. And because it is such an important book, that's why Andrew's going to teach a class on it and give you all the answers to every question you could have about the book <laughs> in six weeks. But most of you, even if you're not familiar with the overarching theme of Isaiah, you're familiar with this because you hear it every year at Christmas. But if you've done any kind of research into it, you're very quickly presented with the challenge that it happens within the context of the prophecy of a son who would be born to a woman who was at that point a virgin as a sign to a wicked king that he did not have to align himself with Assyria, but that he could trust Yahweh to look after the people of God, even though Syria and Israel had united to attack Judah. There's a historical context, and you have to understand that in order to fully appreciate what's going on in Isaiah. But what Matthew is doing is he reaches back and he takes that verse, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is able, truthfully and irrefutably, to say that this virgin, the word parthenos in Greek, it means clearly a virgin. There's no doubt whatsoever about the condition of this woman that the fulfillment was this virgin would give birth to a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. He says this is the Savior of the world. Now, Matthew explains Joseph's reaction after hearing all of this. Back to Joseph, verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He obeyed. And while we don't have everything the angel said, perhaps, I don't know everything Joseph was to do, but if the text tells me he obeyed, I have to believe that part of his obedience was to take this woman to be his wife and to refrain from sexual 
intercourse with her until she had given birth to a son and then name him Jesus. These would have been the requirements. This was a monumental act of grace and kindness on the part of Joseph. What a courageous young man. Because for the rest of your life, you would carry the stigma of having a child out of wedlock. Nobody will believe you. We've said it before, but perhaps one of the reasons why it was so difficult for Joseph to find a place to stay in his own hometown with his wife who was about to give birth was that the stigma around them was so intense that nobody even wanted them under their roof. Nobody wanted to be known as the house in which that child was born. For the rest of his earthly life, Jesus Christ was constantly put up against the righteousness of the Pharisees and deliberately and intentionally called Joseph's son in order to drag up this past and put it in his face that he's an illegitimate child. Don't for a second be duped into thinking that all the sweetness of your little nativity sets would somehow convey the reality of what this couple faced, not only in the birth of Jesus, but then in the birth of all of their other sons and daughters that they had naturally as they came together as husband and wife in direct confrontation to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about the perpetual virginity of Mary, and to understand that it was the husband and the wife and the entire family that bore the stigma of this decision by Joseph, initially to put her away quietly, and then finally to take her as wife and raise that child as his own. Because as we saw last week, it is by adoption Christ is in the line of David, though a cursed line of Jeconiah, and it is by birth he is in the line of David through the bloodline of Mary. He is the Savior of the world. And so Joseph did what he was told. He took her, he knew her not, and he named the child Jesus, the very thing that the angel had told Mary to do as well in the account in Luke. So, just by way of reminder, what must we believe about the virgin birth? Number one, that the virgin birth is the seed of the woman. It is from the Spirit of God, and it brings forth the Savior of the world. Secondly, though, let's answer this question just briefly as we apply the text. Why must we believe in the virgin conception? Why must we believe it? Why is it a crucial part of the Christian faith? Why is it a non-negotiable why is it a fundamental? Post-enlightenment, and especially post-war, there was a movement in the mainline denominations to begin to do away with all of the fidelity to Scripture that would require you to believe things like miracles and the virgin birth. And in contrast to that, a movement began called fundamentalism. And that was the good kind of fundamentalism. Not cultural fundamentalism, not heavy rule-based, legalistic, hyper-moralistic fundamentalism, but good fundamentalism. In that regard, we are fundamentalists, and I wouldn't mind using the term as long as I had the opportunity to clearly define it. By fundamentalist, what we mean is that we believe the fundamentals, and the fundamentals were set up in direct contrast to the liberalism that had come into the church to try to do away with these miracles and supernatural activity of God. 
So you have to believe it to be a Christian. You can't just pick and choose and accept certain aspects of the narrative and reject others. It is a fundamental. But in that way, let me give you four in particular reasons. Number one, the biblical testimony. It is consistent through the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. There is not a single apostle who wrote anything that would undermine the doctrine of the virgin conception and virgin birth. It is essential because the Bible says so. And because it's clear in Scripture, it needs to be believed by those who claim to be believers. Secondly, the historical reality. The historical reality of it. There had to be a union of natures in the God-man. Now, I know we're really getting into the weeds here, and so I'm going to take you down just for a moment, then I'll bring you back up for air. But the reality is, for salvation to occur, there had to be a God-man. The technical term is hypostatic union. One had to come that was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but was man in order to die for man. And so with that, we come up with the terminology from the Council of Chalcedon. And as these scholars gathered together to fight against the heresies that were rearing up against the doctrine of the virgin birth, one of the things they did was to clarify terminology for us. And here's how you would describe it. And I know it's difficult sometimes to remember this, and I catch myself sometimes when I'm talking about Christ and His relationship to His natures, because it's very easy to accidentally say something that isn't true. Like, for example, He was 100% man, 100% God. Well, I mean, you don't need to be a mathematician to know you can't be 100% of two things. Or some will say he was fully God and fully man. Same problem. Here's what Chalcedon said. He was truly man and truly God. That's the way we need to understand it. That the God-man, the historical reality, is that he is truly man in every way except sin. And he is truly God. Thirdly, the theological clarity, and I'm going to rely on a catechism for this. You know, historically, Christians were raised up on catechisms from a young age. It's one of the reasons why in our children's ministry we are committed to helping our children by using catechisms as part of our program. In fact, the children received a bulletin today when they came in. And by the way, those of you children who are with us, I want to just thank you for being in our services we give our, Sunday, uh, our, our children's workers some time off around the holidays, and then every month all the children come in together with us for the weeks we celebrate communion. And it has been so great having you all here. Thank you for being with us, and I want to tell you how wonderful you've been and how, uh, how much I've enjoyed hearing from you, what you've been learning. But we have a special bulletin for them, and in there today... From the New City Catechism is question 21, why must the Redeemer be truly human? And the answer is this, that in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, as we saw in Hebrews 2.17. A child can learn that and, and, and memorize that, understand that. And quite frankly, if they can understand that and articulate it, they're ahead of some seminary students I've met. But the catechisms in the old days, especially Heidelberg, were set up in order to very clearly communicate these truths, and so each of these next two questions will be answered this way. The theological clarity. 
Heidelberg Catechism, question number 35, says this, what does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Answer, that God's eternal Son, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, true human nature, so that he might become David's true son and like his brothers and sisters in every way except for sin. You see, the clarity of the incarnation, born of the flesh and blood and seed and DNA of Mary, but not a man, in order that, as flesh and blood man, he might be a man in every way, but without sin, because there was no male seed to pass down that nature. Finally, the practical necessity. Once again, Heidelberg, question number 36. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? What benefit do you receive? Why is it good for us? Answer, that He is our mediator, and that with His innocence and perfect holiness, He removes from God's sight my sin. Mine, since I was conceived. In Psalm 51, when David finally repents of his sin, he acknowledges that in sin my mother conceived me. Not because his mother and Jesse were in some kind of illicit relationship, but because he had the very sin nature passed down from Adam, and David understood that he was a sinner from birth, just like every one of us. And if you're here today and you have not put your faith in Christ, if you're not a Christian, if, if you're visiting, or maybe you're just here because of the season, I have some bad news for you. You're a sinner. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to earn your way into the presence and glory of a holy God. And his demands aren't going to be diminished. He's not going to lower the bar for you. He's not going to say, I demand perfection and holiness, except in your case. He is going to uphold his just standard. But he also sent one who would uphold that just standard on your behalf. And he says that all it takes on your part is to put your faith and trust in him and his finished work. And that is how, the scripture says, he can be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The cleansing that he can give to you through the gospel through the good news that by faith alone your sin can be imputed to Christ and by grace alone his righteousness is imputed to you, that exchange happens because he can uphold in Christ his justice, his justice, his holiness, and also his faithfulness to say that all who come to him, he will never cast them out because their faith is not any of their own righteousness, and not even in, as one theologian put it, their damnable good deeds, but in the one and only Christ, the virgin-born Son of God,
who took on flesh and blood in order that he might put to death once and for all sin and death and hell. And he makes that available to you today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful text. Thank you for this amazing privilege that we have studying it. It is far beyond our comprehension. And it is with humility that we approach it and endeavor to communicate its monumental truths. I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to understand and to believe. We thank you for revealing to us how it is that Son of God, Son of Man, could lay down his life and bring many sons to glory. We know that it is only because of your holiness that a righteous one would be provided, and it is only because of your justice that perfect obedience would be demanded. And Father, that you were willing to crush your Son, the sinless one, in order that sinners might be able to receive the righteousness of Christ. Father, I ask that now as we lift our voice in song, that this room would be filled with the singing of the redeemed who understand perhaps a little bit more clearly now all that was entailed, what happened on that blessed day when Christ was born. In his name we pray. Amen.